0: At this time, our kids ages 4 through 6 and 7 through 9, we have two teaching groups, uh, can head towards the back and teachers, you see the wave of people, the teachers are going and uh, we'll take the kids to teach them through the gospel project is the curriculum we're using right now. Uh, It's an incredible curriculum that takes them through a three-year track of the gospel and learning how the Bible is completely put together. And I think it's fantastic, and I'm excited uh, for them to have this opportunity. So, we always want to, in our hearts, be praying for them as they go to the back. You know, we have already, in this short amount of time that we've gathered this morning, have already had some strong affirmations of some truth. We've had some, and and it's going to continue, because God is, through through Luke's account of Jesus' life, is going to reveal to us some strong truths this morning. But, but my, my desire this morning is that it doesn't become just more knowledge. But it become, and it doesn't become something that we can just uh, hear and receive and maybe just write off. Saying, well, that's just going to be my, my struggle area. Uh, it'll be my past. I'll just struggle in that area and continue. I want to read. When I was standing in the back, Scripture just came to my mind. Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 it says take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart this is among the brothers okay lest there be an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And I want that to be my prayer for you and our willingness to respond to that truth. That today... Not if, but today when you hear the truth, may you not harden your hearts. May you allow your hearts to be tender and exposed. For God to take that truth and implant it into your heart and that it leads to a change. That's the goal that we desire is when we make disciples, it is to lead together, to follow along as we are leading towards what it means to be a f- disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. And so today, if you hear his voice, will you not harden your hearts to it? But I want to ask for that truth and where we're going to glean truth from this morning is going to be in the book of Luke chapter 22. So if you have a copy of God's word in some form, I'd love for you to join me this morning in Luke 22. As we are quickly journeying to the pinnacle of of the gospel of Jesus as described by Luke. What an incredibly rich season that God has had us in as a church as we have walked very methodically through Luke's account of the life of Jesus Christ. And I pray that God is using it for you as a refiner's fire to purify your heart of the things that blind you from seeing Jesus in all of his glory so that you may truly see him as all-sufficient, so that you may truly see him as all-satisfying, that the things that you would look to to provide satisfaction and sufficiency would come up empty so that you can only see Jesus as the only one who can satisfy. John Piper said this once. He said, The best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. So I pray that your heart this morning is gonna be captured, captivated by the beauty of Jesus and that you won't... Hopefully, through this series, you've not just seen and learned more knowledge about the events of the life of Jesus. About the fullness of the deity, because Jesus is fully God. But my prayer is that you have been captivated by the emotions of his heart for you. That Jesus, being fully God, put his humility, took on humility as his posture, which will be no more vividly displayed than the text that we're going to look at this morning with the exception of the cross. And I want you to see the tender heart that Jesus has towards you. You know, no matter how busy my life gets, and it does, and no matter how many dates get put on my calendar, and there are quite a few, there are three dates which are forevermore etched into the calendar of my life. It February 18th of 1981, December 28th of 2002, and January 23rd of 2007. Now, I can be very forgetful. And we all have those days where we forget five minutes after we schedule a lunch meeting or a breakfast meeting that we even set it up. You know what I'm talking about? You know, nothing is as scary to a schedule than for you to get a message that someone is expecting to meet you and they are running about five minutes late and you have totally forgotten what this meeting was all about. Happened to me the other day, actually. Good thing I just happened to be at the place we were supposed to meet, so I was actually a little early. Uh, I was like, all right, if you're running late, I mean, you know, I'm here waiting on you. But no chance I ever miss those three dates. They will never leave my mind because on those dates, three very significant events happened for me. My wife was born. She agreed to this deal to marry me and to spend the rest of her life with me. And our daughters were born. So those are dates that no matter what is going on in my life, they will always be etched into my mind forever. And I will not forget them. My wife says, you better not. That's a good thing. But now these dates are so huge for me because they're more than just appointments. They're more than just dates on a calendar. The calendar is just the reminder for me of the day that represents for me a remembrance of the love I have for the three most important people in my life. And it stirs in my heart that emotion. I celebrate their life. We celebrate the event of our marriage. And this morning, we have been able to witness... Baptism, which in a way is kind of like a wedding ceremony, if you will, a, a remembering your wedding ceremony, where we publicly declare our commitment and devotion to Jesus, where we publicly come forward and say, through baptism, I'm saying that I belong to Him, that I, He is mine, I am His, that He has changed my heart, and that I am a new creation. And that's what baptism shows for us. And through this next passage of Scripture, we're going to look at on communion. Jesus is going to enter into an extremely intimate time with his disciples, which if we are following that same imagery, would kind of be this communion teaching would be symbolic of an anniversary celebration, a remembrance of that day when Jesus changed our life. So every time we take communion, it's a reminder, almost like an anniversary date, a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And so Jesus is going to instruct and demonstrate to his disciples that just like when we, just like when you celebrate a wedding anniversary every year, in the same way, he tells them that every time you take the Lord's Supper, I want you to remember what I have done for you through Jesus. Every time, every year, December 28th rolls around, I celebrate the day that my wife said I do. Every time I take communion, I celebrate the day that Jesus changed my life because of what he did through Jesus and now next week we're going to actually get into Jesus's teachings about what the elements mean in communion we're going to spend a couple three weeks on this this block of scripture about communion because it's extremely important but this morning I want us to see that the basis for the occasion that Jesus finds himself with his disciples this morning and the basis for his time with them is love and I want us to see this morning that the heart of the king is a heart of love and purpose. Jesus was a true servant king. But he was a king nonetheless. But he was a true servant king who came to give his life for us. In Matthew 20, 26, Jesus would tell his disciples these words. He would say, whoever would be great among you Must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, journey with me this morning as we enter into the room with Jesus and his disciples for the last time he would gather with them before he would be arrested. So, let's read together in chapter 22, verse 1. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death. For they feared the people. So, let me stop here for a moment. So, the chief priests and the scribes, they're after Jesus. I mean, Jesus has just been pounding on them and saying, you know, he finally got pretty abrasive and was just, look, these guys... You know, just, just stay away from these guys. They're evil in their heart. And this is infuriating them because their reputation was everything for them. Their identity was built on their performance, religious performance. And so they were desperately trying to find a way to put Jesus to death. The problem that is happening here, though, is that Jesus had made such a huge impression on the crowds that the priests and the scribes were afraid that if they did something, the people would riot. In chapter 19, we read that they did not find anything that they could do. They were looking for a way right then to do something. But they said they couldn't because the people were hanging on every word that he said. And they knew that if they were to walk in on a man who was was just overwhelming them as one who taught with authority, which he did. And, And they knew if they walked in to arrest him, it could have a riot on their hands. Luke 22 said they feared the people. Matthew and Mark would describe the same situation and concern when they would say that they were afraid of arresting him because they were afraid an uproar would, uh, would stir among the people. An uproar. So not only did they fear the people in general, but the religious calendar added a tremendous amount of pressure and desperation to their planning. Because you've got to remember the setting here from our verses, what we just read. It's near the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread during the Passover. So we're at the Passover feast. And so there would be several hundred thousand people coming into this small Jerusalem. Several hundred thousand. And they knew that they had to do something quick to avoid Jesus building even more momentum and getting an even larger following. Little did they know That Jesus' plan was for them to kill him all along. But they were being crafty. We've got to figure out a way or he is fixing to take over this place. They were frightened and fearful. Just as the the, the Jewish uh, people expected Jesus to come as a king who would dethrone kind of a military coup. Those who were on the flip side and the receiving end of that would have thought the same thing. They were thinking this guy is fixing to get an army together and he's about to flip this place upside down. We've got to do something. But they knew they, they had all these people coming in. But they knew they had to do something quick to avoid Jesus getting this crowd. But they also knew that they needed to do it in private. In a setting where it wouldn't stir up the crowds against them. It had to be in a situation where the crowds would not rebel. So what would appear to be the devil's scheme was actually all part of God's plan to use one of his own. One of his own. To be the catalyst that would ignite the process that would lead to his death. Let's look in verse 3. So then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. Who was of the number of the twelve. Sad, what a sad phrase. He went away and he conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad. And they agreed to give him money. And so he consented and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. A perfect plan. What they saw as the perfect plan. You have Judas who was a money greedy dude, okay? This guy was... There's there's scripture in John 12 that... Just six days before the Passover when Mary comes in with a jar of expensive ointment and she breaks the jar and she anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair. And John would describe it this humbling service to Jesus as as Judas getting irritated. And Judas is complaining. He's saying, man, are you serious? This, This lady, we're okay with this? Do you know how much money we could have sold that ointment for? And it could have been sold for this money and given to the poor? But John details for us that behind the scenes, Judas had little concern for the poor at all. He just saw a way to fill up the money bag more because he was in charge of the money bag. So the heart of Judas was bent towards wealth. And the priest and the officers exposed this heart issue. They went to what they knew, how they could get him. Judas was also the perfect choice because he was one of the twelve He would know Jesus' every move. He would know when Jesus was in solitude. He would know when they were in private. He would know when he had withdrawn with his three that he would spend so much time with. And so Judas would be able to choose a time when the crowds were asleep. And Jesus was isolated in a very remote place. And at that place, he could lead the attack. Now to get a script description of what would happen next, we really need to go to John 13. So hang in Luke, but go to John 13 because we're going to fill in what is happening here. Because next week we're going to get into the passage in Luke verse, uh, 20, chapter 22 verse 7 where Luke actually walks through the description of the giving of the Lord's Supper. But there John gives us a beautiful description here of what is happening during this time. John offers this vivid description of the story as Judas looked for the perfect chance to turn Jesus over to the authorities. So in John 13, we're going to see in verse 1 the same scene described by Luke that we just read taking place. Same situation, same setting. Not contradictory, but more descriptive. John wrote wrote it from a different perspective. And look what he writes in, in John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So, during dinner, they're having this meal. Judas's heart has already been overwhelmed to where he is now going to betray Jesus. So, follow with me. Jesus is fully aware as to what's going on he knows that the time has now come I love this I love the scheming that's going on in the back room where they're like getting Judas in the corner hey dude we'll we'll give you some money and he's like yeah I'll go I'll kind of figure out what's going on here the whole time Jesus is aware that 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 Satan has led Judas to do this and so Jesus says the time has now come He has said over and over again to his disciples that it wasn't quite time yet, but now Jesus says, now it's time. It's time. I've told you that it's not about to happen, but it's about to happen. So Jesus knows the heart of Judas. Yet despite what he was about to endure, he would teach them through his actions a principle that I think should characterize disciples of Jesus. Read with me in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. And Peter said to him, no, no, you you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, well, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you. Because Jesus knew something they didn't know. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So track with me here. Jesus, who had recently been anointed by Mary as king, as she broke that jar of ointment and washed his feet and dried them with her hair. Now from this kingly posture shows the countercultural kingship that that represented Jesus' reign. By humbling himself and by washing The disciples feet we will see in two weeks that this would be a demonstration to his disciples of what it truly means to be a servant of jesus because they're it we'll look at a passage in two weeks they still don't get it still totally miss it now during this time period people traveled long distances often on dirty dusty roads And when you arrive at someone's house, it was customary to have a servant who would kind of be the entry level, lowest man on the totem pole. You know, just newest guy got hired. You're going to wash the feet. And we're going to see in two weeks that the disciples wouldn't possibly humble themselves that low. So being that this was a borrowed space, they were traveling to Jerusalem. This was a borrowed space. They were not going to have their servants. They were, they were going to hold the Passover meal there, but there was no servant to wash their feet and Or the feet of each other. So instead, obviously, they're sitting at the table with dirty feet. And Jesus humbled himself and washed their feet. Now, I can only imagine the emotions the disciples felt as they sat there, as Jesus would one by one wash the dust of the day off of their feet. And then I can only imagine the exchange between Judas and Jesus. The one who would in a few hours betray Jesus, the one that Jesus was fully aware of his plans and that Satan had convinced him. And Jesus would take his foot and he'd begin to wash the foot of the the one who was about to leave and betray him. What an amazing act of service, but Jesus isn't through yet. Let's pick back up in verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You all call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, rightly so, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, this would be the lifting of the heel. This would be an analogy to Psalm Psalm 41 as King David was betrayed by one of his friends, and he would use this analogy as an expression like a uh, a horse lifting its its heel to to deliver a deadly blow. This is what is being referred to, to as he makes this reference. Look at verse 21. So after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is his friends. This is the 12 people who have for three years watched him do all these things, and they've been right in the middle of it. This is the one who is going to betray him who had seen Jesus do miracles, had been his hands as he had served alongside of Jesus. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So John, that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought it was because Judas had the money bag. Thinking, hey, he's going to, Jesus is saying, hurry, run out and get the Passover stuff so we can get this meal going. Jesus was telling him, "Buy, buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. So Jesus has served his disciples, including Judas, and now he serves them through a rich symbolic appeal. The seating arrangement around the table found Judas sitting next to Jesus. What an incredible picture of grace and mercy as Jesus would take the bread and dip it in the cup and offer it to Judas. Now this wasn't just to identify who would betray him. But I think this has deep symbolism to what Jesus was offering Judas. In the Jewish culture, the offer of a morsel of bread dipped was a symbolic custom. In the Palestinian culture, this would be a host would take the bread and would dip it in wine and would offer it to another. And this was a gesture of friendship. You're in my home. Dip the morsel. This is an extension. You are my friend. You are welcome here. And I see that Jesus, if I look at it culturally, Jesus is saying here to Judas, Judas, here is my grace. Here is my grace. Now, you go do what you have to do, but you remember, here is my grace, Judas. Grace is extended to you also. Through Jesus reaching out to Judas, we see the nature of Christ who loves an enemy, who loves a sinner, who loves an ungodly man and who does the same for each of us. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 10 says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The extension of grace to Judas is the same extension of grace Jesus offered to us while we were enemies, for the ungodly, for the sinful, for the enemies of Christ. But despite the offering of Jesus, the plan was in place and Judas had to betray him and that he would do. Judas leaves to go out to begin the process and Jesus makes his last appeal to his disciples to summarize what they had just experienced through the washing of the feet, Through the offering of the morsel to Judas. He said, now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children. He says, my little children, yet just a little while longer I am with you. And you're going to seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, you're going to seek me where I'm going. You cannot come. A new commandment I give to you then. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus issues this revolutionary call for his people. Jesus would say, I'm giving you a new commandment. And this new commandment is that you love one another just as I have loved you. Do you realize the depths of the love that Jesus was about to demonstrate to them? This is not a selfish love. This is not a conditional love. But instead, it's one that models for us the sacrifice that Jesus would make when he reached out his hand to Judas as his disciple turned enemy. And says love. And this is the same type of gesture that Jesus would reach out his hand to us on the cross. So leading into Jesus' giving the sacraments of the Lord's Supper, I think he wants to teach us something from that. He doesn't say just love based on your definition. He says, as I have loved you, so you love. It's a commandment. It's not... a a suggestion it's not a saying things will go well if you do this he says no this is a new commandment that I'm giving you that you love people the way that I love you and so as I look at this passage as a whole I think we see some timeless messages that though it was spoken into the ears of his disciples in that Passover feast room They resonate forward 2,000 years later into our ears this morning as an imperative that we must heed as the followers of Jesus. And I think the first thing that we see from this is that as a characteristic of the disciple is that a disciple always selflessly serves. That is characteristic of this commandment Jesus has given us. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this one because the imagery of Jesus serving his disciples speak much louder and clearer than anything I could add. But look at how the disciples were. They weren't washing feet. Are you kidding me? It's a servant's job. I'm a follower of the rabbi now. I don't know if you heard about that. Jesus, he called me to follow him. So let's save that for the nobodies, the new people that are wanting to be like, like Jesus. We have disciple business to take care of. But that's not how it happens in Jesus' economy. Not the way Jesus measures servanthood. But I want to ask you a question. And the question is, how selfless do you serve? Now, follow me here. I didn't ask you how much do you serve. I asked you, how selfless do you serve? Jesus wasn't mad. He had every right to be hacked off, but he wasn't. I'm sure he was very disappointed, but nothing in the story descriptively would cause me to believe that Jesus was angry. He didn't finish and say, Well, since nobody else is going to do it, I, I guess the boss man's going to have to get up and wash feet, huh? No. He moved so selflessly that I have to picture the disciples not even really noticing him because they were too busy flexing their disciple muscles. And Jesus serves them one by one, even Judas. And when he finished, he didn't go back and sit down and plop down and say, there you bums. Somebody else's turn next week. I'm not doing that again. No, he says, he sits down very meekly in front of them and he says, do you see what I've just done? You call me teacher and you should. So then... If I'm your teacher and I just served you this way, you go and you do likewise. Not just wash feet, not just serve to serve, but to selflessly serve, to selflessly serve. Now, how many of you, your service is motivated by guilt? Are your service is done with bitterness? It's done begrudgingly like a task, or maybe you serve not to help those you are serving, but to better your perception in front of those that are watching you serve. And Jesus says, I am your Lord. And if I can wash the feet of the very one who is about to sell me out, you go and you do the same thing. I think Jesus issues us a, a commandment to us that as his disciples, we should selflessly serve. If Jesus had gotten up and said, you know, you losers, I'm fixing to just wash your feet and get it over with because nobody, y'all, y'all don't get it. He could have done that. Would it have been service? Yeah, feet would have still been washed. The task would have still been done. But how much more does it reflect the heart of Christ in that he sits down and he says, Look what I just did for you. Now you do that. Very selfless. Very selfless in service. But there's a second thing we see from this. And that is that I think a disciple always graciously forgives. Jesus extended a gesture of grace to Judas. Even though they both knew what was about to happen. Do you see that? Judas knew the plan. And Judas knows that Jesus, if he believes that Jesus is who he says he is... Jesus knows the plan not only was Jesus extending a symbol of the grace he would demonstrate on the cross which was a foreshadowing of that but he was extending grace for that moment that Judas I know you got to go do what you have to do but grace what an incredible fusion of symbolism. And that the extension of the bread identified Jesus' betrayer in a room of friends, but it also showed grace. We are complete opposites from this most of the time. Our forgiveness is offered only to the person once they have crawled back to us. And once we have had time to simmer in the juices of our bitterness and anger. And then maybe then, after we have made them feel like dirt, then maybe we will forgive them. And yet Jesus here, before the deed is even done, he says grace. Listen to this picture of grace. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We will see in a few weeks that Jesus' cry from the cross was a deep despair, asking the Father for forgiveness for those who were in the very act of murdering him. He says, forgive them, Father. As they are murdering Jesus and beating him and scourging him and mocking him. And he is from the cross not spewing insult, but is saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold it against them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, Father. Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing they don't realize it they don't think that I'm who I say that I am they don't realize it forgive them father that is grace that is forgiveness motivated by grace and so the question we ask ourselves is how will we forgive And unfortunately, we're often like the parable that Jesus tells about a man who owed a great debt. A debt that would be more than he could ever imagine paying. And the servant's master gave him grace and forgave him his debt. And the first thing the servant did was go and find the guy who owed him a fraction of that money and had him thrown in jail until he could pay the debt. Well, the master catches wind of it. And he sent the servant to prison and had him tortured in prison until he could repay the debt. And Jesus says, this is how my heaven, heavenly father will respond to that kind of lack of forgiveness. We must be marked by grace and forgiveness. So I ask you this morning, who are you harboring forgiveness from? A disciple of Jesus that I know uh, says, if your master can graciously forgive his betrayer, you go and do the same. A disciple of Jesus always graciously Forgives, maybe even proactively forgives. There's a final thing, and that is that a disciple unconditionally loves. Now I want you to see this from maybe a different light this morning than you've experienced it. Jesus said to his disciples that we are to love others. But follow with me here. This particular passage and this particular command is actually to the disciples. It's actually an instruction on how they are to love each other. Now, Jesus has demonstrated and proclaimed all along of the service that we must do to those outside of the body of Christ. But right here, Jesus is telling his disciples, the brothers and sisters, how they are to love and act like family. Jesus says, just as I have loved you. The kind of love that Jesus is calling his disciples to is not self-serving. It's not conditional. It does not hold grudges. It's not quickly angered. It doesn't retaliate. it's extremely humble, extremely giving. And Jesus says, just as I have loved you in all these ways, now you go and love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Come on now, that sounds a little extreme. This is the the way that Jesus loved me. That's how my love should look. To other people around me, do you realize the people I'm in community with? Hear Jesus' words in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, love the way that I've loved. Jesus' love was sacrificial. He laid his life down. He says in John 15, there's no greater love than this, than when someone lays down their life for their friends. And watch what happens here. Because then the world, those around you, he says, will know that you are my disciples. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. I think it'd be better if possibly I might could be known for my theological knowledge. Jesus says, they do to know you by your love. What about all this activity I'm plugged into? I'll add a Bible study. How about that? Four Bible studies. Jesus says, they're going to know you by your love. just don't understand, Jesus. People are so unlovable. He says, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Hear Jesus, this morning, the world, the people outside of the faith, They will know you're my disciples by your love for each other. And what kind of love is this? It's the love in which Jesus said, now that I have shown you how to love, you go and do likewise. This type of love is mutually encouraging to the body, yet it is missionally. It's missional all at the same time. We will enjoy the accountability and discipline that comes through being in community together and at the same time create an attractive community that the outside world is intrigued by. People will often be converted to community before they're converted to Christ. And we should not be evangelistically surprised at this because Jesus just said, they're going to know you're my disciples by watching you. Tim Keller says it this way, he says the gospel creates community because it points to the one who died for his enemies. It creates relationships of service rather than selfishness because it removes both fear and pride. People get along inside the church who would never get along outside because it causes the holiness. The people of God are in loving bonds of mutual accountability and discipline. Now listen to this. He says, but thus, so, so because of that, the gospel creates a human community a physical community in the world radically different from any other society around it so at the, on one hand we create this community God does through his spirit creates this community that is unlike any other community in society and it's different how is it different because there's only the gospel that can allow us to live and love this way it's counterculture it's counterculture to the way the world says love is based on And yet Jesus says, as you love each other with this bizarre love that the world perceives it as bizarre. As you do that, people are going to be attracted. They're going to look into your community and say, something is different in that group. There's something different there. I know that guy and I know that guy. And they should not be hugging and loving each other. I know what this what this person's life is like and there's no reason that they should be getting served the way they're being served I know the amount of resources this person has and they should be saving that stuff but they're giving it what is going on in this place this is crazy and I've got to find something else about this it's intriguing And then when they encounter Jesus' bride, they meet the bridegroom and he wrecks their heart. And they see that it makes perfect sense through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I pray for us as a church. I pray for us that we look at the way in which we do life. And we put ourselves in this room with Jesus and his disciples. And we hear his commands. His commands this morning that we are to be a gracious people. We are to be selfless as we serve. And we are to be love, loving in a way that is completely different from any definition of love outside of the gospel. So this morning, I pray for all of us. This morning, as we hear the truth, may we not harden our hearts. May we receive it and allow it to do a work in us that will take our community to another level and will be an influence on the world around us like we have never seen before. All for the praise and the glory and the honor of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning that Gosh, I just, God, I thank you for your word. It is just so powerful. Your word is alive and it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And this morning, God, we pray that you take it, not like the hands of not like in the hands of a warrior, but in the hands of a skilled surgeon. And God, you cut. And you separate and you expose for our healing. So, Father, we pray that you do that now during this time. God, we need you. We don't want just activity change. We don't want just personality change. We don't want just behavioral change. We want a heart change. And you are the only one that can do that. So today, Father, may you move. May you move in the hearts of our people. May this be a day that we look back on in our community as a day that changed the direction in which we loved and served and forgave each other. So God, we pray now for your your hand to work, for your spirit to convict, and you give us the desire to respond. And we just ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together. As you come during this time, It's a time for worship. It's a time to have an intimate moment with the Father like he did with his disciples. As you take the bread, which represented the body of Christ, and you dip it into the cup, which represents his blood that was spilled. And just as Jesus extended that morsel to his disciples, he extends it to you today, and he says grace to you. If you're a Christian, God instructs his believers as two sacraments, baptism and communion. And so this morning, we want to ask that you come. And you, if you're a Christian and you, a believer and you take that bread and you dip in the cup and you, and you see and experience the remembrance of the anniversary of what God did for you. If you're not a believer, you watch. And I want you to see that there's room at this table. That the same morsel that will be taken in by believers today is extended to you. Jesus says, come unto me. He says, come to me. Come to me. And Jesus offers forgiveness for sins. And so you have an opportunity during this time. If you need to speak to one of our elders, you come and do that. Uh, Let them pray for you. Let them pray over you.